Good morning. How are you in Brown Corners at this sunrise service this morning? <laughs> I, uh, I told my wife, we, we live in Sunfield, we attend the church down there, and she says, well, what time is the service? And I says, honey, I don't know. Let me look it up. 8.30. Well, we'll just leave early. Well, it's about 80 miles. She says, oh, no, we're going to have to go spend the night. So we did. We came up last night and spent the night, and uh, we are mostly refreshed and really excited to be here this morning. We'll be in the book of Jonah. Um, we're going to talk a lot about the whole book, and then we're going to focus on the last little bit. Uh, I first met Jeremiah when we were both students at New Tribes Bible Institute. Um, right before, and now my wife Ruthann's back in the corner, she'll correct me, right before he got married to Elisa, and uh, they have a pack of kids. Um, the thing that I really like about Jeremiah is that he's a passionate guy. He's, he's passionate about his family. He loves his family, loves his kids. And at the same time, he loves the church. He, he's excited about being a minister. He's excited about being your pastor. And so uh, I'm excited for you and for him as well. I ran into Jeremiah at the, uh, one of the regional conferences as we're, we're gearing up for the big national UB conference we just had. I ran into him and I said, Jeremiah, you know, I'm not assigned to a church right now, so if you ever need any help, just feel free to give me a call. I'd be glad to come up and, and fill the pulpit if you need a day off. Uh, I know you've got Jeff as the all-purpose SUV type pastor who just does everything. Um, but I said, Jeremiah, if you guys need some help, I'd be glad to come up and fill the pulpit. And he said, I'd love to have you come. But I've got a couple of qualifications first. You can't make me look bad. And I says, well, that's fine. You know, I, I, think, I, can, I think I can pull that off. He says, bring a good message, but make sure it's not too good. And I says, okay, brother, I, I think I can do that. And I said, so this morning, if you, hear me, if you hear me umming a lot or, you know, stuttering a little bit or there's awkward pauses... That's just me honoring my agreement with your pastor. <laughs> my wife is here with me today. She's back in the corner. Can you wave, Ruthann? That is a beautiful and patient woman right there, folks. Uh, we have four children, two boys and two girls. Two of our children are adopted. Uh, it's been almost 12 years since we had our first adoption day, so all of our kids are grown up. You know what I mean? They're grown up but they're not grown out of my wallet just yet. Um, the, the, the girls live uh, away from home. The boys are still kind of working their way towards independence. My oldest daughter is married, uh, and she has a son, Zadok. He is six months old. And my younger daughter, Tylesha, lives in Grand Rapids. She has a son. His name is Ezekiel, and she needs us to take care of him, so I have a toddler. So if you see me running around with a little 20-month-old uh, little buddy, that's my little buddy. Uh, he lives with us. He's here with us today. And uh, my other grandson, Zadok, is starting to get teeth, and he's driving his mother just a wee bit closer to the edge, um, which is fun for me. In my final semester of seminary, I started looking for a pastor to serve in. I applied at a, a small UB church in Michigan, and they did not hire me. And uh, maybe that's the grace of God. I don't know. Uh, nor did any of the other churches I applied at. I applied for maybe 30 or 40 places, and all of them said, no, thank you. Some of them didn't say anything. They just kind of left me in oblivion to wonder. And I said, Lord, I don't know quite what to do. So I went back to work. That, that's what you do, right? When, you, when something doesn't work out, you go back to work. And by trade, I'm, a, I'm an over-the-road tractor-trailer driver. Uh, any truck drivers here? They're probably all at work. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, we do a lot of work, and a lot of work starts on, on the weekend. When I finish here, I'm going to go to work. Um, wow, when I finish working here, I'm yeah, anyway. When I started to read up on the UB, I realized I have a lot in common with the denomination and began attending the local UB church in Sunfield. Along the way, <clears throat> I graduated in the spring of 2013. Nobody hired me. I returned to work, and, and I've been involved in the church there, and as involved as I can be, and my pastor, Randy Carpenter, has been so helpful. He's been kind of shepherding me through the United Brethren denomination uh, ordination process. So there's a two-year process. I'm about halfway through, and uh, I'm really excited to be a part of the United Brethren. Conference was amazing. Uh, if you didn't get to go, I would recommend it. Um, I think what was, what was really interesting for me is to, to hear, as we talked about difficult things, to hear the heart of the pastors of this denomination as they wrestled to hold forth truth in one hand and love in the other. And I thought, these are my people. These are the people that I want to be a part of. I spoke to the youth group. My son is working with the youth group, and I spoke to the youth group at Sunfield last week. I asked them which job was cooler, because I said, look, I'm a pastor on one hand and a truck driver on the other. They says, oh, yeah, truck driver is way cooler than being a pastor. Um, turns out I spent a whole lot of money at seminary for nothing to be less cool, I guess. This message is the closing message for a series my pastor is doing on the book of Jonah. He asked me to close out the book for a series in Sunfield. And as I've been reading and thinking about Jonah, I've been doing a lot of thinking about it. I think it's a, it's a message that everybody in the church can, can grasp and understand, especially in the time we're living in. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be at Jonah 4, 10, and 11. But let me just pray real quick as we get started here. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over us, that this message would, incu- would just be your words, Father, your words to all of us, Lord. I pray that as I speak, that it's not just for them, it's for me as well, Father, that we come to the throne, we come before you, Lord, and that before you, you would teach us and instruct us, Father. I ask for your grace and your guidance and your love in Christ's name, amen. My younger daughter doesn't, doesn't call me very often. Usually when she calls me, it's because she has a problem with student loan paperwork, or it's Father's Day or my birthday or her birthday, or she needs money. That's kind of the list. And so she called me a couple weeks ago and she says, Dad, I have a question. That's how she starts every conversation with me. Dad, I have a question. Now my daughter, to say that she's high strung would be a little bit of an understatement, okay? She is wound up tight. And she says, Dad, I have a question. What's one thing from the end times in the Bible that has happened? And I said, honey, what? Because there's always a question behind that question. There's, there's always, you have to peel the layers of this onion. You have to say, well, honey, what, what are you looking for? Because I'm not, I'm not, I believe we're in the end times. I, I have a pretty standard end times chronology. But I, I, I just, I'm more concerned about right now than what's going to happen in the future. I'm concerned about being a right now Christian. And she says, you know, she's going back and forth with me. And I realized that she was dialoguing with another student. She's taking some classes. She was in dialogue with another student, and she knows God exists, and she wants to prove him wrong, this other student. She wants to prove this other student wrong right now. So, Dad, give it to me. Make it a good one. I said, well, honey, that's not really really the, the way that it works. You know, that you have to, there's history. And so finally I ended up with this young man, David, on the phone, And what was interesting about David's question is every one of David's questions intersected with history, theology, uh, exegesis, politics. I 
I mean, it was just every question hit everything. And I says, David, this is a really big question. And so the way that you would answer this question is by cha-chunk, 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 cha-chunk. I mean, it's a big question. There's a lot of parts to it. It was good to talk to him. And it was good to think about, you know, when we look for a sign, when we want to know that God is there, we have to look in Scripture. We have to look at what he's done because that's where we can you know, rely on things. I was reminded of the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 38 and 41. I'm just going to read it to you. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The only sign that Jesus was willing to give them is the resurrection. But when did he give it to them? He told the Pharisees, this is the sign that I'm going to give you, the sign of Jonah. He's alive. He hasn't died. He hasn't been put in the tomb. He hasn't been raised from the dead. So what did those Pharisees do that day? If somebody said something to you that you weren't sure about, what would you do to find out more information about it? You'd Google it. Right? I bet all these Pharisees went home and they're booting up their computers and they're like, this is the Stone Age. I don't even have a computer. They wanted to know, what's the sign of Jonah? What's, what's he talking about? What does he mean he's going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights? Where's that come from? They went home and read Jonah just like Jesus wanted them to. Because Jonah is all about correcting our view of divine justice. What could he mean? Jonah offers a corrective. Jonah wants God to judge the evil Ninevites, but God doesn't have a simplistic view of divine justice. The book of Jonah was written at a time of great tension in Israel, Assyria, the regional superpower with their capital city of Nineveh, was persecuting the people of Israel. Now, in the ancient world, like if you, if you were to walk out in the parking lot and someone were to start persecuting you, you would call the police. And the police would show up and they'd be like, what's going on here? Well, he's persecuting me. And the police would say, stop it, right? Or maybe they would take somebody to jail. Um, I think a playground illustration would, you know, fit here. Teacher, he's pulling my hair. (laughs) The Assyrians are persecuting the Israelites. And in the ancient world, what this looked like is when, when someone came and attacked your town and they won the battle, they took all of your people away. They would kill all the adult males. They would uh, marry the adult females. And the children would become slaves. That's what persecution looked like. So you can imagine, what's Jonah's attitude towards the Assyrians? He hates them. Deep down, all the way in the pit of his heart, he hates them for good reason. For very good reason. He wants God to judge them. Is that right? Is that right to want that? I would submit that it is. 
when we're persecuted by our enemies, we cry out to a God that listens. We say, God, I'm being persecuted. I need your help. The Bible is full of, save me from my enemies, Lord. Jonah looks and he's confused. He says, wait. Well, we'll get to more of that. I think the setting of Jonah really resonates with us today. As I listen to the news and think about what's going on in politics, I feel outrage about gay marriage and the LGBT movement. I don't understand why the government is doing some of the things that it does. Now, I understand on one, on one level, I think about it, and I go, okay, well, the government's not Christian. But come on. Some of this stuff is just, it's out there. I think about the recent news reports about abortion doctors selling fetal tissue. It's ghastly. The word ghastly comes to mind. And that word isn't enough. Maybe you're already a very compassionate person, but I look at these events and others like them. I shake my head. God, where is your judgment? When will you come down and help us? Jonah has the same problem we do. We have to balance the justice of God with his mercy. You remember the storyline of Jonah, right? It's as if God is asking Jonah to look at the world through a different set of glasses. Have you ever done this? Have you ever borrowed somebody else's glasses? My wife, before we got her to the eyeball mechanic, um, she had those Coke bottle, she had a Coke bottle situation going on. And so I would take her glasses and I'd be like, how do you see anything? Even worse, how do you see anything about me that you like? But God says, look, I want you to look at the world through my lenses. I want to correct your vision about things. You have a simplistic view and you need to think about this. Jonah refuses to see what God sees. One of the great things about the book of Jonah, and I'm just going to sort of walk through some of the big points here, is how ironic it is. I wonder why in the world did the Lord pick Jonah to do anything at all? Because you remember the story, right? Uh, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And what did Jonah do? He's gone. He's out of there. That's bad prophet. Don't do that. If the word of the Lord came to you and said, go somewhere, wouldn't you go? No, you might ought to. So Jonah receives a commission from God to go and preach to the Ninevites. That blows his mind. He runs away. God sends a storm as he's on the ship. Ironically, the Gentiles on the boat are crying out to God, and Jonah, prophet of the one true God, is in the hold of the ship sleeping. How's that for spiritual sensitivity? He's in tune with the Lord, isn't he? And so the captain has to come down and he says, Awake, sleeper, what are you doing? Cry out to your God, we're about to perish. Jonah reveals he is the servant of Yahweh. They should throw him overboard, but they don't want to harm him. If you like irony, Gentiles, pagans, are compassionate towards a Jew who is not compassionate towards a bunch of pagans. That, I think, is funny. I, think, I love what the Bible does with that. Ironically, they don't want to harm him. They are very sensitive to, uh, they cast lots about it. Jonah doesn't care if God fries Nineveh. 
Eventually, they toss him over the side where Jonah finds himself inside a great fish. In chapter 2, he is experiencing judgment. God says, okay, let me give you a taste of what's coming for the Ninevites if they don't repent. And so Jonah's in the belly of a great fish, crying out. And let me just, I don't, I'm time challenged. I hope that's okay. Um, We'll just go with it, okay? Look at Jonah 2, 3. Okay, Jonah's crying out from the belly of the whale, and he says, For you cast me into the deep. Um, Jonah, the sailors cast you reluctantly. He's talking to God. God, you threw me in the water. No, God didn't. Um, Verse 4, So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. God had to catch up with you first. He's just running away. And so even in his prayer, there are hints of irony and exciting things and fun things that are happening. But I think the the big thing is as you get to the end of his prayer, verse 9, the end of verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Even Jonah recognizes that God has a right to be compassionate to whom he chooses. In chapter 3, God delivers him and restates his commission. Go to Nineveh and preach against him. Okay, the little sound that I made was the whale vomiting Jonah. Remember the flat jokes? Jeremiah looks pretty good, doesn't he? Go to Nineveh and preach against him. Jonah delivers a very short message. At the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. How would you like to go preach to a city with a five-word sermon and have the whole place just repent? Like, as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, that would be like, whew, that was easy. You know, we didn't have to develop a strategy and go in in multiple locations and, nope, five words. Repentance. Well, what's, what's Jonah's response to this? Eh, I don't like it. So he goes outside the city and he sits on a hill and he says, maybe God will judge them anyway. In chapter 4, Jonah pouts and waits for judgment where God gives him an object lesson. God provides a plant to shade Jonah from the heat of the day as he waits for God's judgment. This is to display God's compassion. God provides a plant. Have you ever, in my house, there are two big maple trees. And no matter how hot it gets, if you go sit under the maples, it's pretty nice. Much nicer under those maples. Then God removes the plant and sends a hot wind, a picture of God's judgment, right there at the end. And Jonah, when God removes it and sends the hot wind, what he wants Jonah to do is to realize that God is a compassionate God. Take a second to look at Jonah 4, 10, and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah, you don't see what I see. You have pity over a plant, but not over a city filled with people. Do you remember the arcade game Whack-A-Mole? Kind of a kid's game, right? Where there's a, a, a console... And there's a bunch of little, little fuzzy moles that pop up, and you've got a big old hammer. And every time a mole pops up, what are you supposed to do? You whack it. It's a pretty straightforward game, right? My grandson 
would probably play whack-a-mole, no problem. Whack-a-mole. Pops up, whack him. That's Jonah's view of God's justice. He says, God, these are sinners. You need to whack them. It's almost like there's an arcade game in the ancient world, whack a Ninevite. Right? That's Jonah's view of divine justice. But the book of Jonah preserves an account that offers a corrective to simplistic, mechanistic conceptions of divine justice, especially with regard to nations. God is compassionate towards them. Jonah's conclusion reveals that a deeper problem is a distorted understanding of divine election and divine justice, which prevents joyful participation in God's mercy. When God is merciful to a sinner, we should rejoice. Jonah should rejoice that God is being merciful above and beyond what we deserve, what we merit. At the end of the book, you know, you have this ending. God makes this statement, and that's it. I feel like there should be like another verse that says, and Jonah repented. But there isn't. It ends on a cliffhanger. You know why it ends on a cliffhanger? That's intentional on the part of the author. He wants you to think about divine justice and divine mercy and how it works in the world you live in. And that's true whether it's the Pharisees in the time of Jesus or whether it's you and I in Clare, Michigan, sitting here right here today. How does divine justice and divine mercy work together? And if that doesn't keep you up at night, it should. Because the answer is, help me, Lord, to understand. As Jonah sees the tension between mercy and judgment, he hoards compassion only for himself. He takes full advantage of God's compassion. God hasn't just squashed him. He hasn't played whack jonah He hoards that compassion for himself, but he refuses to have compassion on the Ninevites. It's as if God says, Jonah, I want you to look through these glasses. I want you to look through my glasses. I want you to see the world like I see them. And Jonah says, no thank you, Lord. I'd rather have it my way. Jonah sees compassion only for himself. Compassion is, according to the dictionary, a deep feeling of sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. It's a strong feeling, a strong push on the inside to help somebody out. In compassion, this is from Karen Armstrong, in compassion, when we feel for the other, we dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and we put another person there. Misdirected compassion is pointless. Jonah is like, the plant, the plant, the plant. Really, it's himself. Have mercy on me, God. Have compassion on me. But let's squash those Ninevites while I sit under the shade. I think the world around us is full of compassionate people. I think there are a lot of people who have compassion. But just like Jonah, it's misdirected. It's scattered over here and it's scattered over there. And it's, I actually looked up a website that said, Spay Pets for Jesus. Now, folks, I'm all about spaying and neutering your animals. That's fine. But I don't know what the connection is to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That one mystifies me. Misdirected compassion is a real problem. There's an article that I looked up um, about uh, when a disaster happens. When there's an earthquake or a typhoon or whatever, people just come to help. They just come out of the woodwork. There's a California manual that says you can expect 40,000 
uh, unsolicited volunteers to show up after a major earthquake. They're not going to bring any food. They're not going to have a place to stay. And they're going to look at you. Hey, we're here to help. You're in the way. You're actually not helping. They're contributing to the problem. They're called convergent volunteers. After the September 11th attacks, more than 40,000 unsolicited volunteers arrived at Ground Zero in New York. Compassion is an important emotion that impels us, drives us to do something. But misdirected compassion harms rather than helps. Perhaps the greatest image that my mind, comes to my mind about misdirected compassion, I saw a picture one time of a woman. There was a, a big bowl about this big around. And a woman was pouring, a Hindu woman was pouring milk into this big bowl. And around the rim of the bowl, there were rats drinking the milk. And I thought, she's compassionate because she thinks one of those rats might be one of her ancestors. That's misdirected compassion. Because I'm certain that children who should be drinking that milk. Like Jonah, we have received compassion from the Lord. Are we ready for God to be compassionate to other people? God's compassion is for the whole world. Compassion for people is the whole point of the gospel. And that's where 411 comes into play. When we put God's lenses on, He says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, as well as many animals? God sees the people lost, sinful, rebellious, and he says, I love them. Jonah, can't you see? Stephen Curtis Chapman says this, as Christians, our compassion is simply a response to the love that God has already shown us. You see, folks, God has been so compassionate to us. When Jesus told the Pharisees the only sign he would give them is the sign of Jonah, it gave them something to ponder. We have to remember that from their perspective, Jesus had not died, nor had he been resurrected. When Jesus offered them the sign of Jonah, all of Jonah came to mind with the theme of God's compassion. Jonah was written to people zealous for God's judgment, just like the Pharisees. And Jonah points out, The book of Jonah points out God's judgment is to be feared and should bring people to repentance, a change of mind and belief. They should cling to God's compassion. God's compassion, that deep sympathy for people who are stricken by misfortune with a desire to alleviate the suffering. And Christ is the answer. Christ is what God saw when he looked at the world and he said, I want to help you. Here's the best help I can give you, Jesus Christ. Christ is God's compassion. When Christ was on the earth, he was very compassionate towards the suffering of people. He fed them and he healed them, but feeding them and healing them were in service to his message, in service to the fact that he is sent from God. God himself, the Savior for our sins. Christ is God's compassion. And so we, as recipients of God's compassion in Christ, have a deep responsibility to represent his compassion to other people. 
as we consider the homosexual and LGBT movement, we need to remember these are people whom God loves. As difficult as that is to see with our own glasses, we need to take off our glasses and look at people with God's glasses. I think a lot of times when, when we think about these things, we think about the realm of public policy. What, what do we do as a society? What are the laws that we're going to institute in our government and everything? And folks, I, I want the government out of some of our business. That, that's my opinion. And, you know, if you have a different opinion, God bless you, that's fine. I'm not here to talk politics. I think that there's a different level to the discussion that is the personal level. That's the level at which I'm dealing with another person across from me who may deal with same-sex attraction, who may have been a practicing homosexual in the past, who may have had a sex change operation. That's a person. And God loves them. And God sent Christ for them. And I'm Christ's representative to them. And God, help me if that day comes to represent you with your glasses and with your eyes compassionately. Though I disagree with what they do or what they may have done, I want to show them the love of God, the compassion of God, because I've received it. We must see the world as God sees it, with the tension between justice and compassion. As we think about abortion, we need to remember that God, moved by great compassion, sent Christ to die for the sins of those people who were involved in these practices. I have a, a, a man that I trained as a truck driver. He's a good guy. He's not a Christian, but he's, a, he's an inquisitive person. And he wasn't intimidated by my beliefs. He's about this tall. His name's Nate. I love him. Uh, he's an African-American gentleman. Uh, when, when things are going on with, with race in the world, I call Nate. We talk about it. And it's great to get his perspective because he grew up in inner-city Detroit. He had a very rough upbringing. And uh, so we talk. And uh, as he was in training with me, we were talking about a lot of different things. And, and he saw somebody in a truck stop who was, they were, they were flying the flag. They were the LGBT movement. They were... You know, they had the rainbow colors. I think they had a rainbow mohawk and everything. And I didn't see him. He saw him. And he comes out, comes out of the truck stop, and we're walking back to the truck. And he looks down at me, and he says, what do you think about gay marriage? And I, I it came out of, kind, of, kind of out of nowhere. So I looked back at him, and I says, Nate, we've only just met. <laughs> but it gave me a minute to think. And I responded. I said, you know what, Nate? God loves people. And I want to be the kind of person who loves people too, even though I disagree with them, even though I think gay marriage is wrong, even though I think the LGBT movement deceives people. I want to make sure that I'm loving towards people. And then a little bit later, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, I don't remember, he said to me, well, what do you think about abortion? And like that, without thinking about it, I said, Nate, I'm against killing people which is the right answer. But after I thought about it, he may have paid for abortions because he was a sexually active young man. And so the right answer wasn't couched in the right words. It needed to be something like, you know what, Nate, I'm, I feel very compassionate towards those women who've had an abortion and regret it. I think that's a better answer. 
Nate was recently in a, in a tractor-trailer accident. He escaped death by literally, folks, um, I could have been attending his funeral this past week. Uh, very scary. I almost didn't show the pictures to my wife because um, we worked for, the same, worked for the same company. And uh, I said, Nate, God's not done with you yet. And it got him thinking. So would you pray for him for me? Nate Taylor. Compassion. Compassion for people. Here's the tension. We must stand for truth. We have the right answers. We have to deliver them in the right way. So that we, we feel the tension between justice and compassion. And we should always be rooting for compassion. Jonah knew that the Ninevites deserved God's justice. But God wants us to understand that there's a tension here. We need to see what God sees. At odds with God, Jonah typifies those who see the divine attributes of justice and mercy functioning for their own convenience. Mercy for themselves, but justice for their enemies. Fortunately, however, these attributes are not directed by human motives or desires. As the book of Jonah makes plainly obvious, God is sovereign. His justice is totally impartial, and his mercy may extend to anyone. The world will do what it does. Sinners will sin and no amount of public policy will change that. We need to feel this tension between justice and compassion and root for compassion. We need to see the world as God sees it, compassionately, knowing that in the the larger picture, will God take care of justice? Yes. Yes, he will as we pray for compassion. With this in mind, we must be compassionate people. My daughter was looking for a sign. Give me that one thing, Dad, that one thing that's going to prove it and make this guy believe. Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the sign that this world is looking for. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one abiding historical sign that establishes the truth of Christianity. It is the sign of Jonah, the bedrock of our Christian confession. We must deliver this truth as an aspect of God's compassion on the world. With that in mind, we must be compassionate people. Dallas Willard says this, We must then strive to meet all persons who cross our path with openness to service for them, not, of course, in any anxious obsequious, overly solicitous manner, but with ease and confidence born of our vision of our lives together in the hands of God. With ease and confidence, because compassion comes from security. When we're secure in who we are, we can be compassionate to other people. I want to close with, um, my wife and I have... uh, We've sort of entered a season where we're, we're focusing on prayer a little bit more. And we're focusing on, I specifically am focusing in on the historical prayers that have been written. And I'm encouraging her to, to write out her prayers. And I think what, what writing your prayers does, it helps focus off the list of things, the, the laundry list, you know. Dear Jesus, check, 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 check. Okay, we're done. Um. And it focuses in on who God is. And so I have a written prayer here from Mother Teresa that I'd like to pray with you as we close today. Dearest Lord, may I see you today 
and every day in the person of your sick, and while nursing them, minister to you. Though you hide yourself behind the unattractive disguise of the irritable, the exacting, the unreasonable, may I still recognize you and say, Jesus, my patient, how sweet it is to serve you. Lord, give me the seeing faith, then my work will never be monotonous. I will ever find joy in humoring the fancies and gratifying the wishes of all poor sufferers. O beloved sick, how doubly dear you are to me when you personify Christ, and what a privilege is mine to be allowed to tend to you. Sweetest Lord, make me appreciative of the dignity of my high vocation and its many responsibilities. Never permit me to disgrace it by giving way to coldness, unkindness, or impatience. And, O God, while you are Jesus, my patient, deign also be to me a patient Jesus, bearing with my faults, looking only to my intention, which is to love and serve you in the person of each of your sick. Lord, increase my faith, bless my efforts, and work now and forevermore. Amen. And I think when when she uses the word sick, put the word for whoever it is makes you the maddest. Thank you.